Well, we have the wonderful privilege to look at the Word of God once again, and today we're looking at 2 John. So please take God's Word and turn to 2 John. Last time we looked at verses 8 and 9, and today we're beginning our look at verse 10 down through verse 13, which will take us to the end of the book. 2 John. I'm going to pick up reading at verse 7 so you have the entire context. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. You know, as we consider this passage once again, it's very important that we understand what we believe as a church, as well as individual believers. But in order to do this, we have to know what's in the Bible. Therefore, that presupposes that you're reading and studying it. And as you read and study the Bible, you find that there are many non-negotiable truths that you and I cannot vacillate on. For example, we cannot vacillate on who God is. The Bible teaches that He is one, but also teaches that He is three individual persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Deuteronomy 6.4 says this, The Lord our God is one Lord. And that is echoed in 1 Corinthians 8.6 as well as 1 Timothy 2.5. He is one, but He is also three individual persons. And I've told you this on other occasions. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God, and the term God is Elohim. And that word Elohim, which is both singular and plural, gives us this understanding. For example, we find the word itself is singular, and the ending, the I am ending, is plural. And so it's saying that this singular God exists in some form of plurality. And we see the plurality in Genesis 1.26 when it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We also see it in Genesis 3.22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So we cannot vacillate on this truth right here. There are false teachers out there teaching that the Bible does not teach about the Trinity. I would say to mark those, note those who they are, and stay away from them. You don't need to listen to that because that is heresy. Because the Bible does teach this as a non-negotiable truth. A second thing that we can't vacillate on is the virgin birth. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And that very verse is quoted in Matthew 1.23 and applied to Christ, but it's given also the definition at the end of the verse when it says, which means God with us. Over in Luke 1.26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And after Mary is told that she will have a child and have to name him Jesus, she asks, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, 
And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The Son to be born is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, too, is a non-negotiable in Scripture. That is something we cannot vacillate on. That's something that we affirm in Scripture. A third thing that we can't vacillate on is the deity of Jesus Christ. That right there is an essential and non-negotiable tenet of the Christian faith. John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the only one that John identifies as being the Word of God. He does that also in 1 John. And he tells us in verse 14, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So since the Bible teaches that God is one, but three individual persons, Jesus is God, as also noted by Paul in Titus 2.13 and Peter in 2 Peter 1.1. Even the writer of Hebrews quoting God in Hebrews 1.8 says, But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. And there are many verses in the Bible, like John 8, 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was born, I am, and they're claiming to be the I am of the Old Testament, Exodus three fourteen. And there are many other verses like that. But 1 John five twenty, it says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. And here's your phrase, this is the true God, and eternal life. So we cannot vacillate on the deity of Jesus Christ. These are non-negotiable truths in the Bible. This is what sets us apart from being pagans to being Christians. A fourth thing we can't vacillate on is the resurrection of Christ. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That right there is the gospel. In fact, over in verse 13 it says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is a quotation from Joel 2.32, which in that verse tells us that the Lord is Yahweh. So we can't vacillate on that teaching either. Another one we can't vacillate on is the ascension of Christ. Acts 1.9 says that after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And of course we can't vacillate on the return of Christ. We might have differing opinions and views on the timing of these things, but we cannot vacillate on the fact that Jesus Christ is coming or not. John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. There Jesus is telling his disciples that he's coming back. Or even like 1 Thessalonians 4.16, which says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. He's coming back. And we cannot vacillate on those truths either. And of course, we can't vacillate on the Scripture. The Scripture is the Word of God. It's not the Word of man, it's the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is given by God. It's inspired by God. It's breathed out. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And you see so many times in Scripture that when you hear the Word of God, you're hearing the Word of your Creator. Exodus 20 and verse 1 says, Then God spoke all these words. And of course, beloved, another thing we can't vacillate on is salvation. Because the false teachers attack that doctrine head on. The Bible teaches that we're saved by grace through faith, alone, in Christ, alone. 
It's not Christ plus your works or Christ plus something else. It's Christ alone. It's by grace alone. By faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So you just heard some of these non-negotiables of Scripture that we affirm, that we believe. This is what sets us apart from the world. And we can't vacillate on these non-negotiable truths. There are some things in Scripture, of course, that we can have an opinion on, but we can't on this. In fact, if you vacillate on this, your very salvation is questioned. John says that these false teachers vacillated on two main doctrines, the incarnation of Christ and the deity of Christ. They said Christ did not possess a body because matter was evil. And since he didn't possess a human body, he also wasn't divine. And of course, there are false teachers today that attack the Bible. They attack the Bible by teaching things that are not true, or things that the Bible doesn't mention, or things that are just rank heresy. Let me give you an example of this. Kenneth Copeland and all word faith teachers believe that all believers are little gods. You're a little God. And here's two quotes from Kenneth Copeland. One he says, and I quote, You don't have a God in you. You are one. End quote. Here's another quote by him. And it's just straight out blasphemy. He says, When I read the Bible where Jesus says, I am, I say, yes, I am too. That is blasphemy. That's somebody that doesn't understand the scriptures, but... False teachers don't understand the Scriptures. They're blinded from the Scriptures. Copeland is deifying man. He's making himself to be a god. That's no different than what the Mormons do. Mormons believe that they will be gods inhabiting their own planet. And they'll be married for all eternity, and their wives will be eternally pregnant. I don't know how that can be appealing to any woman, that you're going to be eternally pregnant, right? In fact, after a child is born, you ask uh, your wife, Honey, we're going to have some more. That's the last thing she wants you to talk about if she just went through childbearing, right? Childbirth. She will not talk about any more kids. But there comes a time when she forgets about all the pain and starts talking about more children. Jesus even said a woman does that. Now, John has already told his readers how they are to respond to the deceivers in verse 7. He says that they first needed to watch themselves. Don't be misled by them. Don't be sympathetic to them. But you must guard yourself. And guarding yourself meant that you always needed to keep an eye on yourself so that you didn't slip up and become sympathetic with these false teachers. He uses the present tense for that verb when he says there that you need to watch. And that tells us that this is an ongoing action something that you're always to do. You're always to be on your guard against false teachers. Don't ever let it down. And it's really dangerous if you decide, well, i got some downtime right now. I'm just going to turn on the TV and see what's being taught on TBN. It's a dangerous spot right there because it's, it's loaded with so many false teachers on there that it, it obscures the true teachers. And by the way, they're only small handful of true teachers on there, probably that you can only count on one hand. But John says, listen, you need to watch yourself, and if you don't watch yourself, you're going to lose what we've accomplished. You're going to lose your reward. And yes, you can lose your reward by entertaining false teachers. So John says, secondly then, not only do you need to watch yourself, you need to evaluate what is taught. These false teachers do not continue in the teaching of Christ. And we said last time that the teaching of Christ is defined for us in verse 7. 
as the incarnation, they do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And we already said why they do that. The Gnostics believed matter was evil. So they didn't acknowledge Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. This revealed, as John says here, that they never had God in their life. In other words, if you reject this basic, non-negotiable teaching, it reveals that you never had Christ. You never were saved. It's not that you lost your salvation. It's that you never had it to begin with. Jesus said in John eight forty two, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative... But he sent me. So if God is your father, who do you love? You love the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.22 says, Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. The anointed one. The Hebrew equivalent of Christ is Mashiach. Messiah. You're denying that He is the Anointed One of God. You're denying that He is the Messiah. And then John says, This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. If you deny the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, you deny the Father also because it is the Father's Word that tells us about Jesus and who He is. So John says, if you deny that Jesus is the Messiah who was sent from God, you're the Antichrist and you have neither God nor Christ. But when you continue in the teachings of Christ, it shows that you have both the Father and the Son. 1 John 2.23, the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. He also says it again in 1 John 4.2, every spirit that confesses, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And I believe John even takes it further by showing us what the incarnation means. In 1 John 4.15, he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So it's not just believing in the incarnation, but it's believing that Jesus Christ is God. Again, this is a basic tenet of the Christian faith. This is a non-negotiable truth. And these false teachers did not pass the test. They vacillated on this. And as I told you before, that the whole issue that's going on as to why John is writing this letter is because of the whole subject of Christian hospitality. You have itinerant preachers that would travel from place to place, and at various times they would need a place to stay. And John is saying... You don't want to put up these false teachers. If you do, you're going to lose your reward. You're going to lose everything that we have worked for, everything that we have accomplished with you. See, beloved, all those statements that I've just made are very narrow. They're narrow statements. Have you ever had anybody accuse you of being too narrow, narrow-minded? Well, you know the gospel is narrow. It's a narrow gospel. In fact, Paul tells us how narrow it is in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. It's narrow because it revolves around one person, and that's Jesus. And it's also narrow because it revolves around His work of redemption on the cross. Paul says He died for our sins and was buried and was raised on the third day. And since it is a narrow gospel, meaning that it's in Christ and in His atoning work, it's also a narrow way. Let me have you to look with me at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. 
Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. And he's about to bring it to a conclusion in chapter 7. And as he begins to conclude this, notice what he says in verses 13 and 14. He says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Notice the many and the few. The many find the wide gate, but the few find the narrow gate. And he says you have to enter through the narrow gate in order to be saved. A narrow gospel, a narrow way. The parallel passage to this is Luke 13, 24. And in Luke 13, 24... Luke heightens a word that Jesus uses when speaking of this narrow gate. In fact, he says it this way, Strive to enter through the narrow door. We've gone from an analogy of a gate now to a door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. They're on the wide road that leads to destruction. They come with all their baggage. That's the one thing about a wide gate is you can take everything in. A wide door, everything can go in with you. But if it's a narrow gate, you have to drop some things. And those that are false aren't willing to drop anything. They want to come in with all their baggage. They want to come in with their works-based system of belief. The word that Jesus used for strive... Agonizomai means to agonize, means to fight, means to struggle. Interesting that this word is a command. You're commanded to enter that way. See, there are a lot of people out there that think just believing some facts about Jesus is all they need to do, and that's enough. Or some think that just attending a church is all they need to do. That's enough. Or get baptized he's not even talking about any of that he's talking about how you enter the narrow door you have to agonize this is exerting much effort much energy One writer says this, We are to strain every nerve to enter because of the supreme importance of attaining entry into the kingdom of God. Another writer says, This does not imply working for salvation, but rather earnestness in seeking it. Another writer says, This is expressive of the difficulty of being saved, as if one would have to force his way in. Actually, I find this very paradoxical. And what do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Romans 3.11 says there's none who seeks after God. And here you're told to seek. But Romans says none do seek. There's none righteous, no, not one. And I believe that the difficulty in seeking is because of the condition What's our condition before salvation? Ephesians 2.1 says we are dead in trespasses and sins. That's our condition. It is a state of deadness. That hinders your ability to seek. That hinders your ability to hear. That hinders your ability to believe. You know why? Because dead men don't seek anything. Because they're dead. Can't. I want to use the same analogy. I've done a lot of funerals. I've never seen a person in that casket say anything, rise up and say anything, do anything. They're not there. It's just their body. It's just their shell. Peter calls it the earthly tent, the earthly tabernacle, if you will. But Jesus says that we have to seek. See, again, that's the paradox that we find here because, you know, we can talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation, 
But we could also talk about those passages that talk about repent. And yet when I read those passages about repent and believe and so forth, I I have this understanding like 2 Timothy 2.24 says that God has to grant you repentance. Or I read Ephesians 2.8 that faith is a gift and grace is a gift. So beloved, you and I have to do the same thing. And that is the same thing the apostles did. And what is that? We have to preach the gospel Preach the gospel to every creature, every person. Don't pick and choose who you're going to share the gospel with because there are churches now that are choosing who they reach and they call it a seeker-sensitive church and they've totally changed the whole makeup of the church. They made the church for the pagan. They made the church for unbelievers. The church is not for unbelievers. Unbelievers don't understand us. They're of the world. We're not of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of it. They don't understand. And so what many churches have done is they're trying to accommodate pagans, accommodate unbelievers. And so they changed the entire makeup of the church, entire makeup of the service. They even changed the color of the room. I'm not interested in taking black paint and painting this entire room black. Ceiling too. I'm not interested in turning the lights out and we have just spotlights going on as if we're at a concert. I'm not interested in that. I learned a long time ago, whatever you use to draw people to your church is what you'll have to keep doing to keep them. Because that's what you did to draw them. So you know what I've chosen to do? Is just teach the Bible. Draw them off the Word of God. The Word of God is eternal. It never changes. I change. And hopefully I get better at what I'm doing, but, you know, I know my own deficiencies. How you accommodate the sinner is you give them the gospel. You love them to Christ and you're truthful with them. You know, a lot of times when we share the gospel, we're not truthful. And I say it in this way, we don't talk about bad news. We don't talk about hell. And hell is where you need to start. You start right there. And you tell that person, that the very breath that they're breathing is the mercy of God. Because right now you're under the condemnation of God. John 3.18. And at any moment, your life could be required. And what's going to happen when you die without Christ? Instant what? Hell. It's not purgatory. Catholic Church has accommodated that whole teaching right there by offering purgatory so you could be purged from your sins. Well, I thought Christ died for my sins. I thought He purged my sins. I thought He paid the price and the penalty for every one of my sins. He did. That's not what a Catholic believes. See, that's a works-based system. And we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. So therefore, we can't save ourselves. You know, salvation is holy of God. John 6, unless the Father draws you, you're not going to come. But again, here's the paradox. You're called to repent and believe. You know, I'll just leave all those details to the Lord. He wrote it. He knows what He wrote. He knows what He means. My little puny mind can't always grasp all of that. But the good thing is is I don't have to worry about that. Just preach it. Preach the Word. Entering the narrow gate is nonetheless difficult because it costs. What's it cost? It costs you your human pride. It costs you your love for sin. It costs you the world. 
And it costs you Satan, who is the opposer of truth. So the gospel is very narrow. It's a narrow gospel and it's a narrow way. And why is that? Because it has an exclusive Christ. Jesus said that He is the only way to heaven. He's the only way. He said Himself, I am the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's very exclusive. That's very narrow. And even Acts 4.12, the apostles said that there's no other name given by which we must be saved. There's salvation in no one else. If God had provided another way, we would be preaching another way. If God had provided another person, we'd be preaching about another person. But He didn't. He sent Jesus. So, beloved, discerning false teachers... It's critical for us, as it was critical for them. And you have to watch yourself, and you have to evaluate what is taught. You have to do those two things first, before you can do what verses 10 and 11 says. Before you can have the right response. What does John say in verses 10 and 11? He said, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house... And do not give him a greeting. That's the response that we are to have. And if you don't respond in this way, then, of course, you're forfeiting your reward. A couple things to note about verse 10. It starts out with if. That's in the indicative, and it's assuming that the condition betrayed is actually occurring. The scene that John has in view is not the arrival of some passing traveler who hopes to find needed shelter and entertainment in the home of this gracious woman. Now the verb there, come, if anyone comes, it denotes the purposeful arrival of a traveling missionary, and get this, with the intention of procuring an opportunity to propagate his message. That's the whole point and reason why he's at your door. That's why Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door to propagate their message. They're not interested in what you believe unless what you believe agrees with them. Boy, that sounds political, doesn't it? <laughs> In 3 John, 3 John makes it very clear that it was accepted duty for believers to welcome and aid missionaries of the gospel. But that obligation did not apply to the propagator of a heretical, Christ-rejecting message. See, the established fact that he does not bring this doctrine, the teaching about Christ, as set forth in verse 9, places him under John's prohibition. It implies that the identity of a false teacher is known. Did you get that? They know who they are. But if for some reason they didn't, they would need to find out what they believe. Does this teacher bring this kind of teaching to where he denies the incarnation and the deity of Christ? Same question is true for us. If he doesn't bring the teaching of the incarnation of Christ, the deity of Christ, then do not receive him. Don't receive him in your house and don't give him a welcome. A greeting. Anything short of that is supporting their message. Here's you a few verses to help you with this. 
Romans 16, 17. Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching you have learned, and turn away from them. Don't listen to them. So I told you last week, we are not given anywhere in the Scripture license to listen to their heresy. That is purposely knowing that they are heretics and purposely listening to them. You may not know in the beginning that they are heretics until you hear them. Titus 3.10 says, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. So turn away from them, note who they are, reject them. See, this is really contrasting 3 John verses 5-8, through which says this, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truths. See, see, he is encouraging in this hospitality. And these Christian men who are affirming the truth support them. But not so with a false teacher. Some people believe that You know, if I just talk to them at the door, they're at my house, I talk to them, and I share Christ with them, and and I'm not telling you not to do that. I'm telling you, if you decide to do that, you need to be prepared. These are not amateurs at your door. These are not people that are new to this cult. They know what they're talking about. And they have a way to deal with your objections because that's what they do. They study your response. So they know how to answer you when they come to your door. And unless you're prepared to talk to them, I would encourage you to leave them alone. Don't answer your door. Because what happens in many situations of a person having a conversation with them and they're not rooted and grounded in the Word of God, they begin to get swayed. They vacillate. They hesitate. They begin to question what they believe or what they're taught. Doesn't that sound like Genesis 3? That's exactly what Satan did as he spoke to the woman through the serpent. And what was the question? Has God indeed said? What what was he doing? Trying to get Eve to question God. Eve, God is holding out on you. Look at this beautiful garden right here. He said you could eat of all of it. But one, but he knows that the very moment you eat of it, You'll become like him. He didn't tell her that that's what he tried to do. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Tried to exalt himself above the Shekinah glory of God. And God judged him for that, cast him out. If you welcome false teachers into your home, or you give them a welcome... You are participating in their evil deeds. That's exactly what he says. Verse 10, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil. And the word participates is koinoneo, and it means to share in. That word is translated in Romans twelve thirteen as contributing to. It's translated in Hebrews 2.14 as partaking of. It's the same idea that Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.22 when he said, Do not 
lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share, that same word, responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. And he's trying to say in that, that very examination of a man for ministry, if you're not willing to fully and thoroughly examine him, don't put your hands on him yet until you do. Because some sins follow after. Some sins are not evident at first. That's what Paul says to Timothy. So don't be quick. Don't be quick to identify with them by putting your hands on them and saying that they are the true ministers of God when you have not done your homework. There are many that are involved in the ordination process that should never even been ordained themselves. They don't even know the questions to ask, let alone how to thoroughly examine a person for ministry. See, we need to understand that such hospitality was actually implying an endorsement. You're endorsing the teacher's ministry. You're endorsing his message. So you have to use theological discernment Because your home will now become a platform for that instruction. And I would also just remind you that if you do decide to talk to someone at your door that doesn't bring this teaching, you control the conversation. And the very moment you decide not to control the conversation, you'll know why I said that. Because what's going to happen at that moment is they're just going to be feeding you their heresy. You don't want to hear it. You don't need to hear it. It's dangerous. It confuses, creates doubt. See, as I started out, I talked about we need to know what we believe. When I became a pastor, or even called to be a pastor, my sole desire then and my sole desire now is to teach the Bible so that or for the purpose of you knowing what you believe. You're not going to make it in this world if you don't know what you believe. You're not going to make it just personally struggling with your sin if you don't know what you believe or know what the scriptures teach for you to believe. You're going to be all over the place. You're going to be somewhat schizophrenic in your mind. Because one minute you got this thought going on, another minute you got this thought going on, and they even don't even work together. They collide with one another. You're confused, you're discouraged, you're depressed, you're questioning the Word of God, you're questioning whether you really got saved or not. See, all this is produced by you welcoming a, a false teacher at your door. So again, you've got to watch yourself. You don't want to become sympathetic to them and say, oh, you know, I feel compassion for them. Uh, they need a place to stay. You can't. If you do that, you bid them a kind word, you're welcome to stay in your home. You are participating in their evil deeds. End of verse 11. It's clear, black and white. You're participating. And the word participate means to share in, contributing to their sin. See, John's prohibition is not the idea that you disagree on minor issues. These false teachers were carrying on a regular campaign to destroy the basic fundamental truths of Christianity. 
And so complete disassociation from such heretics is the only appropriate course of action for true, genuine believers. No benefit or aid of any type, not even a greeting, is permissible. The only people that you should aid are those who proclaim truth. Who proclaim the truth of the Word of God. And beloved, for you to evaluate that, you need to know the truth. If you're not in the Word of God on a daily basis or almost a daily basis, you're going to be one of those that's tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You're not going to know what the Bible says. If you're not studying the Bible or trying to interpret the Bible, therefore you don't even know what the Bible means. A lot of times we like to read the Bible and jump straight to application, totally skip interpretation. And even in interpretation, it takes time. And in interpretation, you're after one thing. What did the author mean when he wrote it? Not what does it mean to me or what does it mean to you? What did it mean to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit caused John to write this? Now, when you look down to verses 12 and 13, John had more things to write, but according to verse 12, he wanted to speak face-to-face. I understand that. I text and email, but they are, to me, some of the poorest forms of communication, especially texting. Email's better. You got more room. <laughs> and you can write out more. Texting is a whole different thing. I do much better on my computer than with my little thumb. But I, but I tell you that how many times have you texted or emailed someone and they thought you meant something that you didn't mean? And they were all offended and all upset at you because whatever you wrote, whatever you said in the text, could have been taken a number of ways. But if we speak face to face, that's a whole different story, isn't it? Because you can hear how they respond. You can hear any questions that they have about a statement that you made, and and you could talk about it, and you can clarify. When I get into two, three, four, five texts, I put it down, I just pick up the phone and start calling at that point. So listen, it's much easier to just talk. I'd rather talk anyway. But, you know, texting has its places. You know, if we're meeting this Wednesday, that's a good thing to send out. We're meeting this Wednesday, right? We don't have to call each other and talk about it. So text has its way, you know. I send a text to my wife, honey, I'm on my way home. You know, honey, I'm stuck in traffic. Honey, I just witnessed an accident. Or she says, can you stop at Tractor Supply? I get that one a lot. And what do I say? Send me your list. (laughs) And then she sends me a list. I would much rather have that right there than to go through a whole dialogue on something. I'd rather speak that dialogue. I'd rather talk that out. <laughs> Talking in, into a text. I did that one time to a pastor friend of mine. I didn't proof it before I sent it. And as I'm, I sent it, I'm looking at Oh, my gosh. My text was cussing. It took one of my words, and, and it didn't read it correctly, and it made it a cuss word. And I was like about to fall over dead off of that. And immediately I followed it with another one, and I said, I'm speaking my text. Didn't realize it said this, and blah, blah. He never responded. I don't know what he thought of me. <laughs> but I, I don't take Mark Driscoll's view. I don't, I don't believe in... That kind of language, period. And definitely not in the pulpit. So he says he wants to speak face to face. That's verse 12. What did he want out of all of this? He wanted them to have full joy. They couldn't have full joy if they were entertaining false teachers. They couldn't have full joy if they weren't obeying the command to love one another. But when you're obedient to the commands of God, it opens up an opportunity to have full joy. Because you have an opportunity now to where your conscience doesn't convict you because what you have done was right. He 
He concludes in verse 13 with another greeting. The children of your chosen sister greet you. You see, most teachers today, they, they stay in a hotel. And some prefer it that way. So the, the, the need to stay in someone's home is very minimal. But we must know what a teacher believes and teaches before we follow or endorse their ministry. So I strongly urge you to make a note of those who are false teachers. As I said last time, I urge you to turn off TBN if that's some of your source of information. I would also say turn off uh, teaching elsewhere, YouTube, or wherever else you find it. That is if it's a false teacher propagating their heresy. What teachers am I referring to? Well, here's your list from Justin Peters. Justin Peters' ministry is exposing false teachers, exposing the word of faith movement. He mentions Kenneth Copeland. I mentioned him already. Joel Osteen, Joseph Prince, Joyce Meyer, Stephen Furtick, T.D. Jakes, Jesse Duplantis, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, Bill Johnson, Sid Roth, Andrew Womack, Rod Parsley, John Hagee, Larry Hutch, Paula White, Todd White. That's just a few that he names. Yes, false teachers need the biblical Jesus. And if you're willing to give that to them, you don't need to hear them come back with something false. Again, control the conversation. I mean, I was dealing with a Jehovah's Witness at one time. This was, uh, I was meeting him at the request of his sister, who was a member of the church I was pastoring. And uh, he had been working with a guy that was a Jehovah's Witness who had been witnessing to him with the Jehovah's Witness beliefs. And he started going uh, to their meetings, getting their books. And interestingly enough, he was willing to meet with me. And I think now, as I look back on it, maybe the whole reason why he wanted to meet with me was maybe to change my mind. We spent days talking about, like, the Trinity they don't believe in the Trinity. And beloved, it was like trying to unscramble an egg. It's very difficult. Have you ever tried to unscramble an egg? <laughs> it was a very difficult conversation. To, I ended each of our meetings the same way, of which I told him that if you're not willing to affirm these non-negotiable truths of Scripture, you are not saved, no matter how much you claim you are. And then if you die right now, you're not going to heaven, you're going to hell. That's how I ended all my meetings with him. And even at one point, he brought his books and threw them in the trash can, but then revealed to me later that that wasn't a problem because he could get them again free because they handed them out at the Kingdom Hall of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So we finally came to the point to where he was refusing to leave it refusing to embrace the basic tenets of the Christian faith. I told him he was a heretic, and we parted. Sometimes you have to do it that way. You've got to make it extremely clear that what they are advocating is heresy, and you show them in the Bible just as I said when we started, we need to know what we believe. And I talked about things that are non-negotiable. And what did I do with that? I gave you some passages of Scripture. They do need the biblical Jesus that they reject. And that may be true for some of you if you're here today and you don't have the biblical Jesus. See, to have the biblical Jesus is to understand that He is God. And not only is He God, but He is the Savior. And He alone provided the satisfaction for our sins 
by His death on the cross for our sins to the Father. The very fact that Jesus was resurrected by the Father shows that the Father accepted His sacrifice on the cross. So do you know the Jesus of the Bible? Do you know the Jesus of the Bible who is God and who became man? Do you know the Jesus of the Bible who left heaven's glory to take yours and my sin in his own body and die a horrible death by crucifixion? Do you know the Jesus of the Bible who is resurrected on the third day? If you don't know him, you can know him right now. The Bible says repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, that whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? See, a lot of times you talk to a Christian and you ask them to explain the gospel. They can't tell you the gospel. They can't tell you what they need to be saved from. Two things you need to be saved from. Sin. And you need to be saved from the wrath of God. When John the Baptist was baptizing in the wilderness, Matthew 3, 7 and 8 says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Here's the whole reason why you need Christ. You need forgiveness for your sin, and you need deliverance from the wrath of God. So are you willing to confess Jesus as Lord? Are you willing to believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? Are you willing to call upon Him? See, if you're, if you're not willing to do any of that, then don't think you're saved. Right? It's such a critical issue. That's why what John writes right here is very critical in how you respond. So, let me just give you this summary before we close. Second John, what's the two main things he's telling you? Love one another, right? And do not receive false teachers. You say, but I, aren't I supposed to love them too? Aren't I supposed to give them the gospel? I'll give you Jesus' words. You know what he said? The blind leads the blind, both to fall in the ditch. Leave them alone. Leave them alone. I'm thankful for men in ministry that have the gift of discernment. They put out works that are helpful to us, helping us to understand what these cults and isms and so forth believe. But I'll tell you what, brother and sister, study the truth. Study the Word of God. And as Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this time we've had in your Word, and this time that we've had these last four Sundays studying through Second John. We pray for your direction in our future studies. And we just pray, Father, that the things that we have learned from this small, short epistle, that we would do these things, making sure that we have the love of the brethren, that we love one another. We're told by your word, uh, that when we assemble together, that we are to stimulate one another to love and good works. And we can't do that if we forsake the assembling of ourselves. But when we're together, that's what we are to engage in, one of the many things. And so, Lord, I pray that it help us to be aware that there are those that are out there that teach things contrary to what we understand from the Word of God. Help us in how we respond. 
Help us to understand the caution that John gives here and the warnings. And Heavenly Father, I just pray this morning that you would save, deliver, redeem that person or persons in here this morning that is still dead in their trespasses and sins.